Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 33. And we're going to go into chapter 22, verse 15. It's a little bit of a longer passage, but do your best to follow along in your own copy or with the scripture that is displayed on the screen behind me. Let's all stand for the reading of God's word. When a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen, five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him, if, but if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive and in his possession, whether it is an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to, his own, to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, in 2008, Bernie Madoff uh, was arrested and charged with securities fraud. Now, if the name Bernie Madoff doesn't sound familiar to you, he is an American financier, and he essentially had the largest Ponzi scheme in America, where he essentially swindled people out of their money. 
Uh, he promised clients that if they gave their money to him, they would reap incredible returns. But of course, all of it was lies. All these investments didn't actually exist. All in all, Bernie Madoff ended up defrauding thousands of people and investors out of tens of billions of dollars. And this was over the course of 17 years. <clears throat> Eventually, he was convicted. He was sentenced to 150 years in jail, but he died in jail after 12 years. But even more, he was forced to make restitution. He had to make it right. And so he was charged to pay off $170 billion of restitution. As of today, 0.3% of that has been paid off. Now the question, of course, is, was justice done? Did Bernie Madoff face justice? And were all his victims, did they get compensated? Well, the passage before us in Exodus 22 talks a lot about restitution, repayment. And it talks about loss of property, loss of wealth, and what justice demands. But as we'll see, hopefully, by the end of our brief time together, it speaks about so much more. Now, it's been some time since we've been in Exodus, so just a quick reminder of where we are. We are in the portion of Exodus called the Book of the Covenant. That's the name given to this section in Exodus by Moses himself. And this Book of the Covenant is essentially an outworking. It's, a, it's an impression of the Ten Commandments, which we saw earlier in the book. So this is really the application of the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel at a particular time and moment. And it's important for us to note that what we have before us this morning is a series of case laws, meaning they're examples, they're representative examples of what to do. Uh, they're, you see the word when or if, there's something bad happens, if, when, and how are you to respond? So the Ten Commandments says, do not murder. And these laws here are saying, but what if you did? And what if it happened in the middle of the night? What if it was self-defense? And so what we see here is that these laws are not meant to be comprehensive. They're not to tell us what to do in every single possible situation. But rather, these laws are to train God's people in wisdom. They're to train God's people for wisdom. If you study these instructions carefully, if you've wronged somebody, you actually know how to figure it out. You'll learn how to figure it out, how to make it right, how to resolve it yourself. So one part of biblical wisdom is the ability to resolve disputes and restore justice without having to go to a third party. Right? So a crucial piece of biblical wisdom is knowing how to apply God's word to certain situations even when the Bible does not specifically talk about it. This means we're looking through the scriptures, we're finding precedents, we're looking at examples, and we're discerning and we're going to make wise judgments because God doesn't give us 
a 15,000 page, I mean, we think the Bible's very long already, but we, God doesn't give us a 15,000 page Bible uh, for every situation that might happen in life. Rather, he gives us the word in both the Old and New Testament so that we might seek wisdom and apply it to various situations. And that's why when we're looking at our passage this morning and we see these weird laws about livestock and sheep and oxen and your, your ox is grazing in my fields and things like that, we don't think it's very applicable, but hopefully we can start seeing that there is something very practical that we can glean from these laws. Now, two things I want to be able to do this morning. Uh, first is I want to provide three categories of these Old Testament laws in our passage. This is not a very um, innovative outline, okay? If you're, an out, if you're an outline person and you're taking notes, first thing, three categories of Old Testament laws. And the second thing I want to do is to simply conclude with a New Testament example, okay? So let's look at three categories of Old Testament laws uh, that are before us. And first are laws regarding theft. And we see this beginning in chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, you see that the law starts providing some differentiation on the harm caused to the victim. That's the principle we see. You might think, well, isn't stealing a sheep or stealing an ox the same thing? They're just animals, right? But the restitution is different. If you steal an ox, you have to pay back five of them. If you steal a sheep, you have to pay back just four. Now, why the difference? Because the harm is different. You know, an ox, they weren't just good for July 4th barbecues and for ribeye, right? That's not what an ox was good for. An ox was good for plowing, plowing the field. This is what the farmers would use. So essentially, if you stole an ox, it would render the farmer unable to go about his business. So you had to make restitution. By contrast, sheep, when it comes to work, they're just really bad. <laughs> I know. Thank you. Thank you. I don't, my, my kids aren't here for it today, but uh, they meander. They get lost. Sheep get lost. They bite their shepherd. So the farmer, to lose a sheep, didn't do real harm to his bottom line, so there's a stiffer penalty for oxen than for sheep. Next, you see some commandments about breaking and entering. And the law distinguishes between when the sun was up and when the sun is down in verses 2 and 3. So if the sun is down, it's in the middle of the night, and you kill an intruder in self-defense, you weren't to be blamed. Now, why is that? Because you already went night-night, and it was time for you to go to sleep already. And you, and you heard a noise in the middle of the night. It startled you. You're, you're, you're groggy. You can't yell to your neighbor for help. You don't know if your intruder has a weapon. But if the sun is up, you're awake. There's light. You could call to a neighbor for help. You can see whether or not that person is armed. And if you kill an intruder then, you are blamed and blood guilt is on your head. You can see the threat. You could have found some other way. In other words, the law did not allow for unlimited freedom to the victim of a crime to defend or to retaliate. Now, isn't this some common sense principles that we inherently get? And we understand that this 
can be applied today even to police shootings. You know, that's all the controversy today that, or, that we have in our nation. You know, black lives matter and blue lives matter and all lives matter. But we can apply some biblical wisdom here. Was this a sundown scenario? Was force necessary? Was someone's life in imminent danger? Can they be excused for fighting back, life for life? Or was it a sun-up scenario? Even if, even if the person was caught in a very serious crime, was there another way? Was this person in imminent threat? So I understand that there are split-second decisions. Uh, we, have uh, we have a police officer that's one of our members here at the church, and I understand that there are split-second decisions he has to make. But there are, these are the sort of principles that we could apply today. Now look at verses 3 and 4. Uh, if a thief was caught, he had to pay for what he had stolen. He had to make restitution. If he couldn't pay, he was to put himself into servitude, which we kind of talked about last time we were, or a couple weeks, a while ago when we were in Exodus uh, earlier in chapter 21. Now second, we see in our passage laws involving negligence. Laws involving negligence. Look at verse 33 in chapter 21 uh, about this open pit and then how he doesn't cover it up. He's been negligent, and so the owner must pay restitution. And verse 36, if the owner has been accustomed to gore in the past um, and he hasn't penned him in, he has to make restitution. You have to make it right. Now skip down to chapter 22, verses 5 and 6. Here we see what happens when you graze over someone or trample over someone's fields or vineyard. You know, back then, every, you know, fields, your field was right next to my field, and the boundary markers might not be so clear, and maybe I glean from your fields, or maybe my ox gets loose and, and eats up your, your, your produce or whatever it is. Again, you have to make reparations. It doesn't say the amount to be given, but what does it say? And I misread it while I was reading it with you. He says, he shall make restitution, in verse 5, from the best in his own field. From the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. So if the animal ate your grapes, you couldn't just give him kale back in return. We've all seen this idea work out with children. Uh, sorry, I broke your bike, uh, but here's an old stuffed animal that I didn't want anyways, and so I'm making it right. Well, the idea here is you can't pay back something valuable with giving something lame. The law says you give your best. You're to give back more. You're to make some sort of restitution. So the instinct isn't simply, oh, okay, I'll replace your bike, but rather, I wasn't careful. I broke your bike and now I'm going to do your chores for a month. Something like that. And we see the same in verse 6 uh, with the case of a wildfire. Farmers often set their fields on fire to clear the ground or to burn up the chaff from their wheat harvest. But there is always the danger of thorns along the edge of a field would start on fire, and then the neighbor's field would catch on fire as well. And this isn't arson, but this is obvious carelessness. Some unexpected wind, gust of wind happens. His actions, though, have indirect consequences 
And God expects us to take full responsibility. Full responsibility for our actions. We don't just say, well, I didn't mean to. We make restitution, whether we intended to damage someone else's property or not. Okay, so, so far we've considered laws about theft. We've considered laws about negligence. And this last category is this law on safekeeping. Uh, laws on safekeeping in verses 7 through 15 of chapter 22. The third set of laws involve property given to someone for safekeeping. So this was a common practice in the ancient world. Uh, there were no banks in those days, no safety deposit boxes, no security services that you could hire. If your family said, hey, you know what, for this weekend, we're going to go on a trip to the Dead Sea, and you just can't take all your most valuable things with you. There just wasn't a possible way to do that. So you would ask your neighbor, literally your neighbor, to watch your stuff. Now, after you come home from vacation or visiting your family or whatever it might be, if everything, you get back everything, then things are great. No worries, right? But what if something happened to your stuff? That's what these laws come in. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, verse 7 says, and is stolen from the man's house, and then the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property for every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or donkey, sheep, cloak, or any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. Now, so you can see how this can happen. You come back from the Dead Sea and you say, where's my stuff? And, and your neighbor says, I hate to tell you this, but your wife's ring got stolen. And coincidentally, you know, it happened to be our anniversary and I got her a new ring, you know. And you get a little suspicious. So accusations are made. People are offended. And what do you do? You, it says, bring it before God. Most likely the judges representing God. Uh, and the one whom God condemns shall pay double. So they're to make a case in some sort of determination. Now the rules apply a little bit differently when it came to livestock. So if you skip down to verses 12 and 13... If you ask your neighbor to watch your livestock while they're gone, and wolves come in the middle of the night, and they just devour whatever animals, the livestock that you had, your neighbor can provide evidence for this. And then no restitution is made. Okay? But in verse 12, if livestock is stolen from him, you do need to make restitution. Why? Presumably it's because you watched it happen, but didn't do anything to stop it. So if someone breaks into a house to steal something, there may not be much that you can do, but if you're keeping watch over the flock, you're at fault for negligence. Now there's one more scenario in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11. What happens if an animal wasn't killed, if your livestock wasn't killed by any animals, nor was it stolen, nor was it injured, or ran away? Well, you come back, or, but that it was injured or ran away. So let's say you come back from your trip and you're counting up your sheep and you're like, 
wait a minute, I only count 47 sheep. I had 50 sheep. I'm out three sheep. And uh, your neighbor says, oh, sorry about those three sheep. You know, they just died out of old age. I don't know what happened. And, and you look at what they're having for lunch. And they're having lamb, lamb, lamb shank or lamb chops and lamb kebabs and lamb stew. And you're like, wait a minute. Something's not quite right. You just ate my lamby lambs. So what do you do? It's he said, she said. There's no evidence here. Well, verse 11 says, An oath by the Lord shall be, be, take, be, well, shall be taken between them to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. So your neighbor makes a solemn oath before God. He might say something like, May God deal with me ever so severely if I stole your sheep. May God punish me and kill all my livestock if I'm not telling the truth. Now here's where the Bible gets very practical. Because we've all been in situations like this. Someone says, I promise, I didn't do it. And you think, yeah, right. I know you've been looking at my sheep with knife and fork in hand. And what does the Bible says? And what does the Bible say? It says, you make an oath and you move on. You don't hold a grudge. You don't remain suspicious. You take them at their word. Now, this isn't a call to be gullible. You know, I have four children. And when I say, who just went to the bathroom and didn't flush? They all point to one another like they're in a Mexican standoff. <laughs> and I have to say, okay, I don't know. And then I say, but God knows. <laughs> and he really does. If you tell me you didn't do it, I, I just have to believe you. Now, this is true of children, but same of adults. Some of us hold on to grudges and bitterness, suspicions. I, I just know. My coworker was talking behind my back. They won't own up to it, but I know they were doing it. Even within marriages. Husbands and wives say things to one another. But secretly, we don't believe them. We remain suspicious. And bitterness creeps into our marriages and slowly erodes our marriages. Were you mad at me? No, I wasn't mad at you. Oh, but... I think they're really mad at me. Of course, we aren't to be naive. But the Bible tells us when we get to impasses in relationships, he said, she said, if the person makes an oath before God, you don't spend the rest of your life trying to root it out. You just say, all right. And if you're out sheep and you're, you've been lied to, you can just say, well, I'm just out three sheep. But they will be held accountable to God, and I will trust what they say. Now, finally, in verses 14 and 15, it touches on some cases involving borrowing property. Uh, say you borrow an ox to plow the field and it gets hurt. If the owner isn't there, you make restitution and you pay for it. But if the owner is there, he kind of can oversee how the ox is being used, so there's no restitution to be paid. And then finally, there's an example of if it was hired 
And the idea here is there might be some rental fee or some insurance fee involved, and you're to, uh, there's already kind of a cost built in with the hiring, so uh, both parties are aware of the arrangement, so there's no restitution there. But the overall point, I do think, in verses 14 and, is, 14 and 15, is that if you borrow something from somebody, you take good responsibility for it, you know? If you borrow somebody's books, you know, uh, make sure to give it back to them. Uh, if you borrow their books, don't highlight it at all and then give it back to them. Uh, the idea here is that if you break it, you buy it. And obviously, uh, for some of you who are single and maybe you're living in a household or are sharing an apartment or whatever it may be, we're always borrowing one another's stuff. But I just encourage you to meditate on how relevant these verses can be for you. Uh, but what we've seen in some of these laws here are laws about theft, negligence, and safekeeping. And all of that falls under this umbrella of prompt restitution. So what are we to make of all these things? Now, we could go any number of ways and just say something like, oh, you know, really love your neighbor and those types of things. But here's the question that I want to pose for you this morning. What does true repentance look like? What does true repentance look like? You see, the good news of Christianity is that while humanity is in sin, deserving of an eternal wrath in hell, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and pay for the sins of all those who would ever trust in Him. Jesus rose again on the third day so that He could give new life to His people, eternal life, life abundant. And God calls on everyone to trust in the work of Christ alone and turn from their sins. In other words, God calls on everyone to faith and repentance. But what does that look like? What does true repentance look like? This is one of the more difficult questions that your pastors deal with. Whether it's in situations of membership or church discipline or counseling. And this is perhaps one of the most difficult things that you've had to deal with. Whether it's a coworker or someone's done something against you, a spouse or a child. When someone is caught in sin, they show all the appropriate emotions. Oh, there's tears. There's regrets. And you want to say, that looks like repentance. But then you realize it's the 77th time that this has happened. What do you do then? You want to be gracious, but not gullible. What does true repentance look like? Well, Jesus and John the Baptist put it this way. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, repentance is more than, I'm sorry, I feel really bad. No. This brings us to our New Testament example, and you can turn with me into your New Testament to Luke 19, Luke chapter 19. It's a familiar story. It's a story of a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Now, some of us remember Zacchaeus because he climbed on top of a tree because he was too short. So he's a little bit of a runt. And, uh, but in reality, Zacchaeus was coming up short in a lot of other different ways because he was the chief tax collector, as we see in verse 2 in Luke 19.2. In other words, he was a hated man. 
he was, to be, he was known as a swindler and a cheat because at your job as the tax collector was to collect taxes for the Roman government. And so you had a tax booth, and whenever somebody comes by, you can start taxing them. And really, you can tax them for whatever you wanted. Oh, uh, nice wheels. You got four wheels? I'm going to tax you on each one of your wheels. Oh, how many axles do you have on your wheels? I'm going to, well, or how many pins? I don't know, whatever. How many animals are pulling your wheels? Well, I'm going to tax those too. And they were known as cheats and swindlers. And Zacchaeus was despised because he was the chief tax collector. He was the Bernie Madoff of his day, yet sanctioned by the government. But remember what happens with Zacchaeus when he sees Jesus? Jesus looked up and sought him out, and he says, Zacchaeus, verse, verse 5, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And no surprise, everyone grumbles. Grumble, grumble, grumble. How could Jesus do this hanging out with this sinner and tax collector? And then we see in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, this is significant because in Leviticus, uh, it says that if you admit to your theft, you only need to restore 20%. But here he is going above and beyond. He is paying back fourfold. And how does Jesus respond in verse 9? Today, salvation has come to this house. There was no sinner's prayer being said. There's no inviting Jesus into your heart. All we have recorded is this. Zacchaeus saying, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to make restitution. I'm going to make reparations. And Jesus says, here's a guy who gets it. What Jesus saw in Zacchaeus was a new obedience, a new found forgiveness that shows itself in a new way of life, a new heart that desires to love God and love other people. Listen, you can do the right things. You can all do the right things without being truly repentant. But you cannot be truly repentant unless you start doing the right thing. And as Christians, we must follow the example of Zacchaeus. If you know how you sinned, to whom you've sinned against, and how to make it right, then it is your duty, Christians, your joyful duty to make amends. To make amends. Ask yourself, have you sought to repay your neighbor whom you've offended even more than what you owe? Have you ever asked someone whom you've wronged, what would it look like for me to make it right to you? I mean, they might hate you at the moment and tell you to light yourself on fire. That's how you make yourself right. But beyond that, have you ever even asked that question? Physically, I've wronged you. Emotionally or spiritually or sexually, I've wronged you. And I want to do something more than just say I'm sorry. I want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Forgiveness does not cancel the need to make restitution. Now, reparations has been a buzzword lately in our nation, in our state even, when it comes to race and racism. And some would call on the church to make reparations for white supremacy in America. Now, a lot can be said on that subject, but I think these passages that we have in Exodus and in Luke 
give us some guidelines here. First, the principle of restitution is much more difficult to apply with the passage of time. It's unclear whether all injustice in the past necessitates restitution in the present. Second, in a fallen world, you can't go back in time and right every possible wrong. Sometimes there are infinite difficulties which prohibit us from determining who was wrong, who did the wrong, how restitution could possibly be made without incurring new wrongs. Again, if you know how you sinned, whom you personally sinned against, and how to make it right, we are joyfully obligated to make those amends. And it isn't easy. I was talking with some of the pastors about this passage this week. They said, uh, what happens if I, scenario, cheated my way into law school? I denied somebody probably to get into law school. What do I do then? What if I borrowed, what if, not borrowed, what if I stole from Netflix? You know, I, I shared an account. Uh, how do I make reparations for that? Well, brothers and sisters, if you've done something wrong, yes, make restitution wherever possible. But no, sometimes it's impossible. Uh, the person might be in a coma. Or if that person is unwilling to be reconciled, you can't force it. The thief on the cross had no opportunity to restore anything he had stolen in his life, and yet he is in Jesus' presence in paradise. In Psalm 19.12, David pleads for forgiveness for what? for hidden faults. Why? Why are they hidden? Because he doesn't remember. You can't possibly remember all the ways that you have wronged somebody. We don't even know what people we've hurt. And if we, even if we can remember some, we are not going to remember them all. Church, what's important is your readiness and your willingness and your heart for restitution. If restitution means money and you've got the money, then you will be, your willingness will be assessed by your giving. But if you don't have the money, God knows your willingness and he delights in that as well. But the bottom line is this. And genuine repentance leads to a desire to redress wrongs. And when someone becomes a Christian, he will have a desire born of deep conviction and joy to do good. And that includes making restoration wherever possible. Let's go ahead and pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we sometimes come across these passages which are not often uh, studied and feel very strange to us. And yet we know that your word is always applicable and helpful for living life of godliness. And so, Father, we pray that we would be a church that bears fruit with keeping with, in keeping with repentance. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.